Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. We're a church family in North Carolina with a vision for people to experience the grace of Jesus, be filled with the Father's love, and to release the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's this week's message from Wilmington. I'm so excited to be here. We're in the middle of a vision series. So we took a break last week to hear from Corey, um, and which was really good. We're not going to put it up this week, maybe. I won't read through the vision series. Everybody's heard it, so I won't read through the vision. But two weeks ago, I spoke about the part of the vision that says that those encounters lead to radically changed and filled lives and a people who are activated into their identity as sons and daughters. So as sons and daughters isn't in the vision statement, but it's part of who we are. And so a couple of weeks ago, I talked about identity. Hey, I want to do this. I want to plant a seed. If you want to share your testimony some Sunday, I want to get at this. Those encounters lead to radically changed and filled lives. If you have a testimony of being radically changed, or if you have a testimony of being filled by the Lord, and you want to share your testimony, see me. Because I actually want to take maybe a Sunday or two and have people from our core group share as we get to know each other, I feel like, um, Katie, you said it once upon a time that the Lord was maybe holding back from rapid growth. But I feel like this word that the Lord's given us this year is for, um, for why can't I think of the word right now? I blanked on it. Huh? For the word for this year? Establishing. Thank you. Sorry. Establishing. And I think part of it is establishing us. Establishing us as a family that has some shared you know, some shared life, some shared relationships. And I think that'll continue to grow outside of this building and inside this building um, as we grow and as we're ready to, to have a wave. And I think as part of that, I'd love to hear some, I think we, it would be great for us to share some of our testimonies together. So if that's something you want to do, please see me because I want to start weaving that in as it, especially as it interplays with this part of our vision that we are a people that encounter God and that as a result of those encounters, we're radically changed and filled, right? So today we're going to go further on to this idea of identity. And um, I asked my daughter two weeks ago when I was preparing for the message, I asked Kylie, I said, Kylie, as it relates to identity, who are you? And she's like, dad, I'm a, I'm a child of God. I was like, yes. And she said, and I'm the bride of Christ. And I was like, yes. And she inspired me. I hadn't actually originally thought about breaking out that part of our who we are, um, but she inspired me to, to do that. So today's message is dedicated to Kylie. This idea that we are the bride of Christ, I want to dive into that a little bit today. Um, I actually shared a version of this story five years ago, February 2019. Five years ago, I shared a version of this message in um, Mooresville, which is crazy. It'll be a little bit different today, but I can't believe it's been five years. Sometime before that, the Lord took me into a vision while I was in um, worship. And the Lord shared this vision with me that I want to share with you today to kind of kick things off. Then we'll lay a biblical foundation for who are, are we really the bride of Christ? Does that actually apply to us? And then we'll talk about if, spoiler alert, I think it does. If it applies to us, then what does that mean for who we are? What's that mean to our identity? That's kind of the journey for today. In the vision, I was, uh, again, in church and worship, and the Lord took me into this vision 
And I found myself in a huge room. Let me clarify. This vision was a mental picture for me. It wasn't like an open vision where I was actually seeing this. Not that it matters, but if you're curious. Um, so I was in my, in my mind's eye. I was, the Lord had me in this room. And I was in the corner of the castle where they used to build those round towers in the castle. And I was up in this room. And I was in the room. And I was looking at Jesus. And Jesus was looking out through the window at his kingdom. It was beautiful. And as I was sitting there, I imagined how close I was to Jesus. I could feel it. And then I imagined how, unfortunately, I thought that I lived my life not like that. So in the vision, I actually then saw myself on the other side of the moat, if you would, on the other side of the drawbridge, other side of the moat, some distance off, looking at the castle as if I didn't have access, as if I wasn't in that room with Jesus. And I was looking in, and I was thinking to myself, like, oh, God, can you turn your face to me? Like old school kind of religion. You know, how we kind of, not we necessarily, but how the church was for so many centuries stuck in this place where their God was some far off God. And Lord, if it would be, you know, if it would please you and you could please turn your face upon me, if you would just cast your gaze upon me, you know what I'm saying? Like we felt like we were beggars, that we were paupers outside of the city gates, outside of across the moat without access. And then I realized I wasn't there. Oh, boom, I was back in this room. And then it got weird. I was struck with how enamored I was with Jesus, like just how beautiful he is, how in awe I was of him, his radiant beauty, his glory, his physique. I mean, he was just beautiful staring out this window. And then I realized the, the room I was in was the bedroom, like the bedroom chamber. And I was sitting at the end of a bed. And when I told this story before, I was like, if you're a girl, that might not be too weird. Like, yeah, Jesus is beautiful. Yes, he's beautiful. And, and, but it was kind of weird for me. It was kind of weird for me. And as I sat on the end of this bed, I realized, ah, I'm the bride. I'm his bride sitting in the bedroom chamber in awe of his beauty in awe of his goodness. It was remarkable. And the Lord started to unpack this idea that we are the bride of Christ. Isn't that so good? And I think that we have corporately talked about the bride of Christ um, some, and I've heard some people say that in the end times that the bride of Christ revelation will get more prominent, more prominent, and more prominent. And definitely the bride of Christ ties to the end, end times, which we're in. Um, so I want to just cover a few scriptures. Some people, as I was reading about this, as I first prepared for it, some people have actually criticized that the word bride of Christ is actually not used in the Bible. The term bride of Christ is not used. And I was like, yeah, but the term communion isn't used. But like, we'd kind of all say that's from the Lord, Right. So there's different terms from it. So I'm going to take us through a quick scriptural, scriptural, nope, a journey through the scripture. 
Isaiah 54, if you want to get whatever Bible you have, let's turn to Isaiah 54. Or if you're on your electronic device, I'm in the New Living Translation for right now. Isaiah 54, uh, verse 5. And I'm just going to set some foundation. So I'm going to quickly move through these. And verse 5 in Isaiah 54 says, For your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. He'll be our husband. It's actually talking about future glory of Jerusalem, future Jerusalem. But I'll come back to that because while I think it's talking about a future Jerusalem, a future city, I think prophetically it talks about who we are as the body of Christ. Isaiah 62, let's jump there. So just a few chapters forward. Isaiah 62, verses 4 through 5. 62, 4 through 5. Never again, never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. So good. And then it goes on. It says, your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. Then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Several, right, we are the bride. He's going to rejoice over us as his bride, right? Let's jump to Mark. This is fun. We're just going to play a little Bible game. All the way to Mark, New Testament. Sword drill, stand up. Just kidding. Mark 2. Mark chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Mark chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast? Oh, let me set this one up, sorry. So in this situation, people come to Jesus and they're fussing about him a little bit because John the Baptist's um, disciples are fasting and the Pharisees are fasting. And so they come to Jesus and say, why don't your disciples fast? Why are your disciples not fasting? And Jesus replies in chapter 19 or verse 19, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and they will, then they will fast. Besides, who would patch? Oh, nope, we're going to patching clothing. So that gets into great stuff. But the verse that I wanted to highlight there was, this is the first time that we see Jesus refer to himself as the bridegroom. So in the Old Testament, we hear about God, the bride of God. In this case, Jesus announces himself as the actual bridegroom himself. And he says, why would you fast while the bridegroom's in town? And what he's talking about is his individual people. And I think I want to call that out on purpose. Because there are some people who say that the bride of Christ only applies to the new Jerusalem. Or that the bride of Christ only partakes, uh, pertains to the body of Christ globally, like uppercase C. But here we see it's very personal. Jesus isn't talking about the church. The church isn't established yet. Jesus is talking about his disciples, his individual followers. Does that make sense? So I think we draw a direct connection. We are the bride of Christ. Jesus said it right here. All right, let's jump to John, John 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John 3, verses 29 through 30. Just a few more verses. How's that? John chapter 3, verses 29 through 30. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride 
And the bridegroom's friend, oh, let me set this one up. I'm sorry. I keep jumping right in. All right, John the Baptist, we're back to John the Baptist. John the Baptist, um, his disciples are basically getting this scenario where things are happening and they start asking John the Baptist if he's jealous, in essence, of Jesus. Um, they start asking, like, you know, on the other side, Jesus is doing baptisms. Jesus is doing baptisms. And so everybody's going to him instead of coming to us. Like they started getting jealous of, his, of Jesus's ministry, right? John the Baptist. And so in this, John replies to them, where was I? 29. And he says, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. John now, somebody not Jesus, John recognized and prophesied that Jesus is the bridegroom. And he calls himself out as a friend to the bridegroom, right? The best man of the bridegroom. And kind of reiterates this fact that he is, he is the bridegroom. Okay, let's go to 2 Corinthians. Paul, Paul's great to talk about. 2 Corinthians 2, nope, 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2. That's kind of fun for me to turn my physical Bible there. Gives everybody a chance to get to your favorite rendition, maybe. And I actually am not scared of pauses. All right, 11, 2. For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. In this instance, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. He is not talking to all of the churches, uppercase C. He's not talking to some future Jerusalem church. He is talking to a church, one church, a gathering of believers. And he's saying to those gather, those that are gathered, he's saying, I am preparing you to be the bride. Does that make sense? So again, just to lay in the case that I think this idea of bride of Christ applies to us. It applied to them in that day. It wasn't talking about a future Jerusalem. It was talking about them in that day. And I think we grab onto that as now in this day. Revelation 19. I'll just jump through these two last two real quick. Are you guys okay with all this scripture? Kind of fun. 19 verses 7 and 8 in Revelation. So Revelation 19, 7 and 8. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people some future day when there will actually be a wedding feast. When he comes back, that the church, the people, the individuals, and the corporate church has prepared for the bride to come receive, for the bridegroom to come and receive his bride. It is so beautiful. In 21, Revelation just next door, Revelation 21, 2 through 3. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look. God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Jump to verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls 
containing the seven last plagues came out and said to him, come with me. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So I think in these verses, this is, these aren't only the only verses that refer to the bride or the husband, etc. but these are some that I picked out. It sets a precedent, I think, that the bride of Christ is some future new Jerusalem like we just saw here. It is the new Jerusalem that drops. It is also the corporate church that's existing from the time of Jesus. Paul was talking about it till today. We are in the end times. And it talks about us as a broader global church, and it also talks about us as individuals, like Jesus and John were talking about to the individual followers. Is that, is that okay? So if we're the bride of Christ, hopefully that helped set that foundation. If we're the bride of Christ, what does that mean about us? I would, I don't think, I won't speak for anybody here. I have not fully grabbed a hold of that. What does it mean that I am the bride of Christ? I don't think I've grabbed fully a hold of it. Because I think there's layers of identity. Right, But I will go after it a little bit today. I will stir us up a little bit today. There's layers of identity. Paul says he's a bondservant of Christ in, in Romans. Right, He says that he is a, basically a slave to Christ. Christ says, and sorry, as a bondservant, as a servant, as a people who come to wash the feet of other people, there's some identity in that. That speaks to who we are. We were created to be humble, and we were created to help and serve other people. We're good. We were created to do the things that God created us to do as his servant. Good? Okay. And then Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. Okay. That doesn't mean we should stop serving people. He's just revealing another layer of our identity. So what's another layer of our identity? We're friends of God. There's an old song about that. It's a good song. I'm a friend of God, Right? As a friend, there's a whole thing you could talk about in terms of what, do we, what does an identity mean? That we're a friend of God. We're a friend of the creator of the universe. We are a friend. John talks about it. He was the best man, right? Because we're a friend, that says something about our identity, doesn't it? Okay, then what does Paul say in Romans? Paul says we've been adopted. We've been adopted into sonship. Remember last week, we talked two weeks ago, we talked about being placed in that rightful place of mature sons and daughters where God himself says, I am pleased with you. Where God himself puts his hands on our head and he said, remember this, I bestow upon you now all my riches, powering and authority so that you might act on my behalf in all my affairs as sons and daughters with the signet ring. We get to go do the work fully blessed and fully pleased. God's fully pleased with us. We, if we can get a whole, I think we've scratched the surface on what it means to be sons and daughters. And I think as an uppercase C, we've actually been talking about it in our kind of circles for quite a long time. I think that, re, that God's a good father is a revelation that we've been talking about for decades, right? Not, not years, decades. But I think we've scratched the surface on what does it really mean? I was saying, I think I said it when I was talking two weeks ago. I don't think I get it. Because I haven't lived in a culture where there's actually like a royal family. I haven't lived in a culture where if you're the son of the king, like people do everything for you. Like you have free access where you can't actually sign decrees. Like I haven't lived that. So I don't know that I fully, fully get it. 
But I think I have. I think I have. I mean, I think I've gotten a lot of it, but the Lord's still unpacking things. Okay, we good? So another layer of identity. We're sons and daughters of a good God. Here's another layer of identity. You're the bride. We're the bride of Christ. We are also the bride. While we're slaves and friends and sons and daughters, we're also the bride. The bride. And I think when Jesus refers to us as the bride, it helps to paint a picture for us of a deeper part of our identity that's available to us. Right? And I think it's an incredibly intimate identity. There's not a relationship in this world like a husband and a wife when you want to, if you want to talk about you know real God-ordained inti- intimacy. There's something about a healthy relationship between a husband and a wife that God didn't call himself a best friend in this moment. He didn't say, I'm going to come get my best buddies back. He does. He says he's a father. He says we have a seat. Why did he use this bride analogy? There is verses. I didn't write them down. Maybe I did. Yep, I did. So we know when referencing marriage, there's a couple things that I think are key. In Matthew, we won't read it, but I'll just talk to it. In Matthew, Jesus says about marriage that the two shall leave their father and mother and become one, right? The two shall become one. And then spiritually, Jesus is talking in the end of John, towards the end of his life. He's praying, and he's praying, Father, you and I are one. Let them be in us as one. Like you and I are one. Let them be in us as we are one. Right? It's this connection to you should leave your father and mother and cleave, in this case, to Jesus, to be one with him. There's an intimacy in this bride and husband relationship that's unparalleled. And it's beautiful. I want to talk about Song of Solomon. And Song of Solomon, for those of you probably know, it's written by Solomon, and it was a poetry. There's a ton of metaphor in it. It's not written to be literal. It's very, very metaphorical. We good? That Everybody agree so far? Okay, Song of Solomon was written about this Shulamite woman. Shulamite, interesting, means woman of Jerusalem. Hmm, you're talking about the church. If you were applying this to the bride of Christ, it could apply. Solomon writes this letter, and if we look at it, some would say, and I I tend to agree, that it's also a picture, a picture of who we are as the bride of Christ. And if you have a chance, I highly recommend that you read through it in one sitting in the Passion Translation. It was one of the first books of the Bible that the Passion Translators actually set out to translate. And they translated it through the lens of Christ talking to the story about him talking to us as the bride. And it is beautiful because they take the metaphors that applied in the day of Solomon that are confusing to us when we read them literally because 
two twin gazelles of a fawn or whatever. It's like, what? Huh? Like it falls, it, it, it's lost on us. But they retranslate it through this paradigm of what is he trying to say and what does it mean in words that we can understand? And it's beautiful. And when you read it through the lens of we are the bride of Christ, it's so encouraging. The, the bride, uh, the bridegroom, he says stuff through, through, um, through this story, he speaks to the church or to the Shulamite as if he was speaking to the church. Has, has, anybody, has everybody read Song of Solomon? It's really hard to read if you don't read it like kind of fuzzy eyes and like to apply it to today. So when you do re- remember it's metaphorical. I'll tell you a quick funny story. Maybe it's not funny. When I was a kid, we used to go to summer camp, just like some of the kids here. We used, actually, we used to go to a fall camp and then a, and a spring camp, and it was a retreat. And we go to the mountains of Iowa, not the mountains really, because there weren't there were foothills, and like uh, woods, the woods, and we'd sleep in cabins, and we'd do stuff like the guys would sneak into the girls' cabins and like prank them, take away all their toilet paper, or like put branches in there, I don't know, dumb stuff. So we used to do that, and there was uh, one, one year, one fall, we were there, and my best friend and I really liked these two girls that were on the trip. We didn't really like them, let's be honest. It was like a dumb little crush, but it was kind of fun. And these girls were super into church. Like, super, we felt like they were super spiritual. So we were like, what are we going to do? Like, we're at the church camp. we got to up our game. Like, so we started, we would text message these girls, and and for the kids, we didn't have phones back then. We actually, this was literally before, I, I think this was even before like uh, car phones and before like the phone in a bags. Like we did not have mobile devices. So our version of text messaging, you won't believe it. We would take pieces of paper and we would write on them. We would fold them up and we would deliver it to somebody. When we saw them in person. And then they might reply via a text message same kind of text message, and then get it back to us. And that could take 24 hours. I mean, you would not believe it. It could take two days to get a text message back. It would be unread for a while. And I didn't even know if it was read or not. They had their read receipts shut off. So I'd get this text message back. And so my buddy and I thought it would be an amazing idea if we pulled out verses from the Song of Solomon to capture the heart of these really spiritual young ladies. And so we were going through, we were in the, on the rocks, and we had our Bible open. Also didn't have an app, so we had a Bible. And we were, like, pulling things out, and we were like, yeah, 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 write that one. That's really good. Write that down. And then we'd get to a verse and be like, do not write that down. We will get kicked out of camp. We cannot say that. Can we even talk about that in church? You know? And so we went through and all, back and forth past these messages. It was kind of my first introduction into the Song of Solomon. Maybe God was setting me up to give me some revelation on it years later. Okay, that was my funny story. So what we're saying about the Song of Solomon um, today, if you go back through and read it, listen to what the Shulamite is saying to the bridegroom and listen to what the bridegroom is saying to the Shulamite. And if you listen closely to what God is saying to us, what Christ is saying to us, he is saying these things. Y'all catch this because this is your identity. You're lovely. You are radiant. You're beautiful. You're handsome if you're a man. 
You're his companion that stands out from all other companions. He wants to be with you. He likes you. He invites you to come away with him, to steal away from him, to get away from everything else that's going around and to be with him. In fact, you're irresistible to him. He can't keep himself from coming after you. You are beautiful. You're lovely. You're radiant. I don't think we captured that. I don't think we've captured that. Maybe you're, maybe you're further on this journey than I am. When I was um, engaged to Mary, some of you have heard this story, so I apologize. But when I was engaged to Mary, we were in our early 20s. I think you were in our late teens, early 20s. And um, I met this woman who was far superior to me in every way. I was just a farm boy from Iowa with long hair, skinny. And um, I met this, this woman who had it all. And um, I was so excited. I knew that she was the one. I, I knew it. And so we started dating with the intention that someday this could be turned into marriage, although we probably knew it very quickly. And what happened was I fell into an extreme state of depression. That's probably not where you thought the story was going. But I fell into an extreme depression. And I went to psychiatrists, psychologists, and was diagnosed as clinically depressed and was given a prescription for my depression. And um, I was in a dark place. And I was unpacking that with my brother. Uh, I was living with my brother in Charlotte. This was just a couple years after I moved down to the Charlotte area. I wasn't yet into, still kind of in denominational church, hadn't been filled with the Holy Spirit. Like there was a lot of things. This was pre-journey for me in a lot of ways. And in that moment, my, my brother challenged me. He was like, why, why? I mean, I know he, my family struggles with depression. Like we have depression in my, our, I guess, genes, right? Family curse that we've, I'm breaking off. I've broken off. And in that moment, um, I was in this conversation and I realized that one of the things that was triggering depression for me, uh, not my depression, cause it wasn't my depression and it's not your depression. One thing that was triggering depression for me was that I didn't think I was good enough for Mary. <laughs> it might sound funny today, but back then it was, it was debilitating. How could I be good enough for her? She had it all together. I mean, everybody in the room's like, yeah, that's totally you thought that. She is way better than you. But in that moment, it was like hard for me, right? And my brother asked me, my, my older brother, Sean, asked me, do you believe that God has a plan for your life? Yeah, that's easy. No brainer. God has a plan for my life. Do you believe that Mary is God's plan for your life? Yeah, 100%. God, God has put Mary in my life. He said, then do you think God's lying to you? Do you think that she's not good enough for you? If God says she is, it's like, if God says she's good enough for me, I'm good enough for her, then I guess I am. Lord, help me. Help me see it in myself. My depression broke immediately. 
because I'd been believing a lie. And as Arthur Burt used to say, who's an old guy from Wales, who was part of the Welsh revival, he ministered with Smith Wigglesworth. We had a bless, just the honor to hear him come speak to us as, as part of River Life and for years, I think until he was 93 or 94, over 100 when he came to see us. And he would say that fear, he was tying it to, and I did tie it to depression, is all based on a lie. If you believe, if you deal with the fear, the fear stays near. If you deal with the lie, the fear will die. If that's true about depression, if you just deal with the depression, the depression will stay near. But if you deal with the lie, the depression will die. That's my testimony. When I dealt with the lie, it broke. Now, I've had to fight it. Again, I think there's also some chemical things that are going on. So I've had to learn over time to not own depression and to just deal and let it go. Um, So I'm not undermining the fact that that can be a real thing. But I think, spiritually speaking, oftentimes it ties into a lie. And if we can get tools to help us reframe our thinking and to deal with the lie, then in many cases we can deal with it. But here's my tie to this story. I think I feel the same way about myself when I think about myself in Jesus's eyes. When I look at Jesus, I don't think Ryan's beautiful. I don't think Jesus sees me as beautiful always. I don't necessarily think that Jesus sees me as lovely because I got a lot of junk in my life. But he does. That's the revelation. He does. And if we can grab a hold of this stuff, y'all, it'll set us free. Because then guess what? We won't go look for that in other places. I've been so torn in my life looking at that from my wife. And she does an amazing job of, of loving me in the midst of my shortcomings. But she can only give me so much into who I really am deep down. And we look at it through things like social media. We put our best selves out on social media. And then, you know, there, literally there's statistics and science about the uh, dopamine that fills our brains when people even like, even when people like, just hit a heart button. And people like a picture that we posted. It has a chemical reaction in our body that makes us feel good. Isn't that crazy? And they have figured it out. And they've put a whole algorithm around it. How do we trigger more chemical reactions in more people so more people can use our, this thing? And I'm not like, I'm not attacking social media. I'm just, I mean, I'm attacking it from a perspective of you can't get yourself worth out of social media. And if we go and we drive and we get like, I kind of pick on my kids and my nieces. I'm sorry. When they get all pretty and like they're going to a dance or the, the, the prom or homecoming and they post all the pretty pictures and they do their lips like such like, you know, duck lips or whatever. And you can tell like, Oh, that's that person's pose. That's how they pose for pictures. And it's cute. And sometimes I, I'm, I tell my wife, I'm like, I wish they'd stop posting that. And she's like, leave them alone. They look pretty. They're having fun. I'm like, I know, but I just don't want them to fall into this trap. 
that then they're looking for who liked it, who liked my picture. And I'm not saying that people do that all the time. I'm not saying that's even what's driving people, but I'm just saying that I think it could be a trap. When we're trying to find our identity as a beloved person through other means other than through Jesus himself, right? So apply it to your life however you want to. I think we do it in our relationships. I think we do it in our jobs. Jacob and I work together. And, you know, in our jobs, we like to get the win. We're in sales. We like to get a win. We like to get a signature from a customer. We like to get that call back that says, hey, guys, next week we're going to sign. And it's like, yes, I did it. I did well. I did a good job, right? I'm sure the same applies to you guys. You want to, we want to do well. And I'm not saying that's not a good thing. I think we should work hard as unto the Lord. Like, I think it's, we should do things well. I think the Lord delights when we do things well. But if that's where we're getting our identity, then we're missing it. We're not tapped into the bride, bridegroom identity. Because if we were, we'd just be filled all the time. We'd be filled up all the time with who we really are. Man, that's how I want to live my life. I want to live my life walking around already. Know, y'all, y'all ever seen those kids on social media? This is the part of social media I actually like. You ever see those kids that are preaching? And they're like, I'm blessed. I'm highly favored. The Lord loves me. I don't care what other people think about me. I don't care about their opinion because I know God loves me. And he's in. And you're like, yeah, this little kid. Or the girl that stands up on the counter and she's got her hair dryer or, or curling iron. And she's like, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough in the mirror. This one's like 20 years old. Because they have this perspective, this identity is like being fully loved. And I think some of it comes from being sons and daughters. Who are we as a loved child of God? I think some of it comes from that. But I think some of it comes from being the bride. Because you can't get more intimate than that. You can't get more. In, the, the two are one. The two are one. You're lovely. If you, I want you to receive this. And if you need to close your eyes to receive it, y'all, I want you to tell yourself this. I want you to hear it from Jesus. You're lovely. You are radiant. You're beautiful. He wants to be with you. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care about your actions. They cannot keep you from him. He, by his nature, is compelled to come after you. You are glorious to him. He likes you. He wrote a love poem for you. In Song of Solomon's Song of Solomon, just there's just one Solomon, not two. Song of Solomon, um, in chapter five, verse four, in the Passion Translation, is anybody grabbing a hold of this? Man, I want to. Okay, chapter five, verse four, it says, "Oh, this is the Shulamite's response. My beloved reached into me to unlock my heart." The core of my very being trembled at his touch. How my soul melted when he spoke to me. 
if I could get us all to that place today, I just would, I'd retire. I can't financially retire, but if we could, if we could really feel that inside, intimate Jesus reach into us and unlock our heart. Unlock our heart to where the core of our very being is touched at his, by his touch, and we tremble. Have you all ever felt that? Like it's past the butterflies. It's a deep tremble. How my soul melted when he spoke to me as he says those things that I said earlier, that you're loved, you're highly favored, you're radiant, you're beautiful. When we grab that, when the stuff that happens in this world comes at us, we can shake it off because we know we're loved. We can rise above it and realize that our self-worth isn't tied up into those things that are fleeting, into those things that we have a heart for, and it's heartbreaking. It is. I know it. But we can lay our head on the chest of Jesus, our lover, and remind ourselves that we're loved. And that's so good. We don't have to get it from anywhere else. We can just go back to him and get it from him. I think it changes our relationship with him. I won't, I don't, probably don't have time to go on that today. How we respond to him, the things that we have access to as his beloved, as one. I think it changes the level of intimacy that we have with him. We can apply a whole husband, wife, marriage relationship. Maybe we'll do that sometime when my kids aren't in the room. But if we can just tap into that we're loved, Man, I think it'll change our lives. I think when I don't feel like I'm measuring up in my boss's eyes, I won't care so much. I mean, I'll work hard to do my job better, but it won't wreck me. <laughs> it won't spin me out for a night. You know, when my, you know, let's, we could apply it a thousand ways, right? Thank you for listening to a River Life Fellowship podcast. To get more information, check out riverlifefellowship.com.